Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good to see all of you. Welcome uh, here. Welcome to our online church as well. Um, if you're new here, you're visiting, I'm Jamie, one of the pastors here, and um, I have the, the joy and the privilege of, uh, of preaching this morning. Um, I've got a couple of things I, I want to share uh, with you. The first one is a, a number of you have been a, a approaching me, sending me messages and so on, um, about membership. And so if you are interested in, in church membership or even finding out what church membership is, why do we do it, what's the point, um, how do I become a member, um, what does all of that look like, maybe you want to ask me some questions, you want to find out a bit about the vision of the church, those kinds of things, uh, I'm going to do a, a short membership class next week. Uh, so next Sunday morning, uh, June 4th, uh, just meet me out in the lobby here about 9 o'clock, an hour before the service. Uh, we'll go off, we'll spend about 45 minutes together in one of the rooms here, and we'll talk all about membership, and you can ask uh, whatever you like, and, uh, and we'll talk. So uh, membership class next week, 9 a.m. in the lobby, June 4th. Uh, the other piece that I want to share with you is actually a piece of, um, a piece of sad news for us. Um, Pastor Renee has uh, resigned her position here at, uh, at Seven Oaks. And um, that is, is really, really sad for us because she is wonderful, and we are going to miss her greatly on our staff team. Uh, the silver lining is that usually when a, a pastor resigns, uh, they go off somewhere, uh, because Matthew's still going to be here, right, Matthew? Okay, good. Uh, because Matthew's still going to be here, Renee is still going to be here, and in fact, many of you will see her way more than you normally do because she'll be in here worshiping with us. Uh, so that's, that's the silver lining, but we're going to miss Renee. Uh, the reason she has resigned is she's going back to school uh, in September, and um, it's not really my story to tell, so if you want to know what she's doing, uh, go ask her or go ask Matthew. Uh, but she's going back to school in September, meaning we've got her until sort of the end of the summer, uh, so we love her, and uh, we wish her all the best. We'll have an opportunity to honor her before she, um, she leaves her position. Um, and so that's, that's the news I'm sorry to give. Um, but it does mean I request your prayers, please. Uh, we, we, the Board of Elders have indicated we will be replacing uh, Renee, so we'll um, be looking and beginning a search really soon for a children's pastor. And like almost any industry in Canada at the moment, there aren't enough workers. Um, and so it's hard to find really, really good children's pastors these days. And so I covet your prayers as we seek God, and we're going to trust him that he's going to provide uh, just the right person in the right time for us. So, so please pray with, with me alongside uh, our search team. All right, Jonah, right? We're in Jonah, yes. We are in Jonah, and um, I got a little mixed up because I'm going back into Mark soon to finish Mark before the, uh, before the summer really kicks in, but it's Jonah today. Uh, so here we go. We have been following this uh, story of a reluctant prophet, uh, somebody who was called by God and given a very specific um, uh, task to go to the city of Nineveh and to preach uh, to them. And if you've been with us through the month of May, you'll know some of this, but I'll just uh, recap really quickly. He was sent to, to Nineveh, and Nineveh was the capital of the expanding empire of Assyria. And um, it started out as just a nation, but it, had, it was conquering nations all over the ancient Near East. It was creating vassal states, and it was becoming this dominant, dominant, beastly kind of world empire. And he was sent to the capital city, Nineveh. And uh, Nineveh, actually, if, if you're wondering where Nineveh is, it's actually the, the current-day city of Mosul in Iraq. 
And uh, you may know that name because, of course, in 2014, uh, it was besieged by the Islamic State and was, was taken over by, uh, by them at that time, and it, it got quite destroyed at that time. So sad, sad story. Um, but that, that is Nineveh. That, that, back then, that was Nineveh. And so, um, so they're, they're growing as a, an empire, and, and Assyria is really known for its brutality. Uh, the, the, the armies were swift, they were powerful, and they were pretty cruel. And I could turn your stomach with stories about the things uh, that they would do, and I'm not going to do that because nobody wants to turn stomach. Um, but it's actually no wonder Jonah didn't want to go there. You can just imagine, pick a city or a nation in the world that you know it wouldn't be really a smart idea to go out into the, uh, the, the center of the, you know, the, the market square, as it were, and preach Jesus and, and preach that, you know, this, this, uh, this government's going to be overthrown and imagine uh, it's the certain places of the world. You really wouldn't want to do that because you'd be imprisoned pretty quick and never heard of again. Well, that's probably what it was like for Jonah. You want me to go there to the capital of Assyria? God, have you seen what they do to people? And you want me to go and preach that? So it's no wonder that um, Jonah fled. But the whole book of Jonah is this fascinating dive, excuse the pun, uh, this fascinating dive into the heart of God for the nations of the world and for the peoples of uh, the world and the, the breadth of his love. And it's a fascinating story actually to hold up against Israel because this is about Jonah, but it's really about Israel. Jonah was a representative of Israel in this story in, in so many ways. And I'm, I'm not going to repeat uh, much of the story, but just to say really briefly, uh, we covered in chapter one, Jonah runs off to Tarshish, which is on the Spanish coast. So he's literally fleeing as far as he can get away from Nineveh, jumps on a boat, and he's actually trying to flee from God as well, which is weird. Um, but he soon discovers, you know, God catches up with him on the boat, although God doesn't really catch up because God's everywhere. And Jonah lear learns that when he's in the belly of the fish in chapter 2, and even in the depths, God, you are there. You cannot escape the presence of of God. And so then we have this, this story in chapter two of Jonah praying, and then he gets vomited up onto the land, and it's a crazy story. And then he actually fulfills the calling. And he goes to Nineveh, and he delivers the message, and lo and behold, the people respond, and they repent. And God does not bring the calamity upon them that he said he would do. And then we get to chapter four, which we're going to look at today. And we see Jonah's response to Nineveh's repentance. So if uh, you have your Bible with you open to Jonah 4, it's going to be on the screen as well. You can follow along. Uh, we're actually going to read the last verse of chapter 3, so verse 10, uh, just to give us the context. So here we go. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways... God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to God, O oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled to Tarshish in the beginning, for I knew that you were a gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? 
And Jonah went out of the city and he sat down east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and he made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush, and so it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? And that's the end of the book. Just like that. It's left with a question. It's unresolved. We don't hear an answer. We don't know what Jonah says. We don't know if Jonah changed his heart attitude. We're just left with this question, prophecy over, book over, we're finished. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Chapter four is a really, really interesting uh, chapter. Uh, we, we get, um, you know, we get uh, Jonah, who has preached this kind of one-line sermon, and the whole city repents and praise the Lord. Uh, but in chapter 4, we realize that Jonah may have returned to the Lord, and he may have done exactly what God asked him to do in the first place. He may have gone to Nineveh and preached. He may have been obedient, and he may have been bold, and all of those kind of things, but his heart is still hard. He may have preached to the Ninevites, but clearly he didn't want them to respond to his preaching, so there's still this reluctance in Jonah. He was happy to declare judgment. You get the feeling he was kind of gleeful about that. 40 days and you're done. He was happy to do that. But this idea of them actually humbling themselves and repenting and changing and coming to God, that Jonah was not interested in. And so he reveals his heart. He offers exhibit A of Israel. This is your heart, Israel, and this is what I'm coming after. And so Israel's attitude and Jonah's attitudes are the same. And this story, this message actually confronts all of us then. So Jonah preaches, the city repents, Jonah gets angry, and the juxtaposition between God and Jonah slash Israel is really, really interesting. What we have is we have God turning away from his anger, and we have Jonah turning towards his anger. It's an opposite journey. It's an opposite emotion. It's an opposite posture that they take. God turns away from, Jonah turns towards, and Jonah turns towards anger because God has turned away from anger. Jonah wants God to boil over to judgment and destruction. And so he confronts God. I knew you would do this. It's just typical God, right? I knew you would do it. That's why I ran to Tarshish, because I didn't want you to do this. I knew you would. And you get this kind of sense he goes into this kind of, because you're just so gracious and compassionate and loving, and you're so willing to forgive and relent from punishing. God is so good. Praise the Lord. Isn't he great? Well, he is great when he does that to me. 
but not them. No, no, not Assyrians. I don't want them to be forgiven. Have you seen how wicked they are, God? I want fire and brimstone for them. And I think that's why Jonah goes out in verse 5, doesn't respond to God's question, goes out in verse 5, and he sits down, and he creates this little booth, and he sits there watching over Nineveh, like expecting God to pour down judgment. That's what he's hoping. Maybe God will do it after all. Maybe God will bring about the fireworks display that I want. Maybe God will execute judgment because it's the Assyrians after all. Jonah wants to see a classic Sodom and Gomorrah kind of situation where fireballs rain down from heaven, and he's rubbing his hands, and he's getting ready to record it, and he's sitting there with glee. Just before he goes out there in verse 5, God actually confronts him, but he confronts him with a question, and it's just a simple question. Jonah says a whole bunch of words. God doesn't actually say much, but he just asks him a question. He says, is it right, Jonah? for you to get angry? Is it right for you to be angry? And church family, I think this is possibly the most important part of the whole book. Is it right for us to get angry when things like this happen? The right means, is it causing good? It's the Hebrew word tob. Is it causing any good that you burn with anger? Jonah isn't actually ready to be confronted by that question, so he ignores the question. And God lets him ignore it. And then he goes out to sit and watch the hoped-for fireworks display. You know what? It's absolutely fascinating to me the way God deals with Jonah here. I was really struck by that uh, this week as I was kind of studying it. Jonah is emotionally volatile, right? Jonah's suicidal. Three times in chapter 4, he talks about his own death. He's emotionally unhinged. He says, I'd rather die than live in a world where mercy is shown to the Assyrians. So Jonah, in the one hand, is acting bad. He's acting out of turn. And God could tear a strip off of him. And and God isn't afraid to to punish him, like with the fish and like with the plant. He isn't afraid to, to do that. But also, God models how to counsel angry, volatile, suicidal people doesn't just wildly condemn him, doesn't judge him, isn't harsh with him, actually invites him into a conversation about his emotions. He invites him into a conversation about his anger. Let's talk about that, Jonah. Is it, is it right for you to be angry? God is really gentle with him. He counsels him in his anger. He gently brings it up. He opens up dialogue with Jonah, and then he doesn't push it because Jonah's not ready to have this conversation, so God just lets him go. He doesn't force him, say, no, you talk to me. He just lets him go. I think it's wonderful the way God deals with him. I was talking with uh, Pastor Jack this week, um, who preached last Sunday, uh, chapter 3. And and Jack was just sharing with me uh, one of the things he saw in the passage, and I said, I'm going to steal that, Jack. Uh, So that's why I'm giving credit to him. So I'm not just stealing it, I'm borrowing it with Jack's name to it. Um, And and he said, you know, one of the fascinating things that that I saw was was the the difference between when Jonah is sitting looking over Nineveh and when Jesus uh, comes up to Jerusalem is looking over Jerusalem. There's There's a real difference there. You see, what I think is going on here is Jonah is taking a front row seat to watch Nineveh get destroyed. And Nineveh may deserve judgment. We all do. And a place that represents such barbarism probably deserves to be wiped off the map. 
And so we get this moment where Jonah, angry at God's mercy to them and refusing to engage in dialogue over his anger, sits down gleefully to watch them have justice served up with fire. But then we jump forward to the Gospels, and towards the end of Jesus' life, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, and he overlooks the city. And that city was full of people who were were resisting God, and they should know better. They should know better than the Assyrians. The Assyrians don't know their right hand from their left. But the people of Israel at the time of Jesus, they had the covenants and the law, and they had all of the blessings. They should know better, but yet they constantly killed the prophets, and they, they, they... engaged in religiosity, and they were going to crucify Jesus. They broke the law, they created idols, etc., etc., etc. Jesus not only could have looked across to Jerusalem and rubbed his hands together and say, cool, in a few decades, the Romans are going to roll in and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. I can't wait. Or he could have called on legions of angels to throw down fire from heaven and burn it up. But he didn't. Jesus had the opposite emotion. In fact, he weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps for them. Oh, Jerusalem, how I love you. If only you would respond to my overtures as a father. If only you would respond, I would have taken you under my wing. How I long to take you under my wing, but you refused. And so Jesus responds so differently, and we get this beautiful picture of of human's response and, and, and God's response, the love, the heart of God. So after this, once Jonah has stormed off out of the city and found his spot to see what God is going to do, God pursues him again. And in fact, God, who has just been declared to be gracious and compassionate, now shows grace and compassion to this this angry man. And and he causes a a, a plant to grow up and and to give shade uh, to um, Jonah. Talk about unmerited grace and unmerited kindness. I don't know about you, but if it was me, I'd probably go get a sunburn then. I don't care if you're going to be like that, you know, but then I'm, I'm, unrede- I'm not fully redeemed uh, as, as you aren't either. But, um, but God is good and God is gracious and kind. And Jonah is blessed by the plant. It gives him cool shade and he's, and he's happy about it. The passage says it saved him from his discomfort. And in fact, this is the second deliverance of Jonah in the book. The first one is he's delivered from the belly of the fish. This is the second time where he's delivered from the hot sun and the discomfort of the sun. He's delivered twice. He's saved twice. And in the story, we're supposed to see that Jonah is happy with his deliverance from the fish. And he's happy with his deliverance from his discomfort. But he is not happy about the deliverance of Assyria. The deliverance of Nineveh. And so comes the lesson. And so comes the lesson. The next morning he wakes up. The plant has withered and died. The worm has destroyed it. In addition to the removal of this merciful plant, an east wind begins to blow, and it's really uncomfortable to Jonah. And once again, he cries out that he may die. And I mentioned earlier that God had asked him this question about, and Jonah didn't answer about the anger. So God didn't push him, but now he returns to the question. He says, yeah, but we need to talk about this, so come back. It's time to talk. And he says to him, are you right to be angry this time about the bush? 
And this time, Jonah is ready to engage in conversation, but again, it's fairly petulant. Yes, angry enough to die, he says. He's mad. And then God brings the lesson. He says, you are concerned about this bush for which you did not labor and you did not grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. Should I not be concerned then about 120,000 people that I made that don't know their left hand from their right? They're lost and also many animals. And the lesson is clear. God wanted Jonah to see that he really didn't have the right to be angry about the plant. He didn't have the right because he had nothing to do with it. He didn't create the plant. He didn't sow the seed. He didn't water it. He didn't allow it to, you know, create conditions for it to grow. In fact, God brought it into being. Jonah didn't even have a relationship with that plant because it was only around for the day. How he had so much attachment to it is it was around for a few hours. It was very temporal, but yet he grieved over the loss of the plant. How much more would a gardener grieve over a plant? Someone who tilled the soil and fertilized and put the seed in and watered it and watched it grow and tended to it and loved it and pruned it and saw it grow into this beautiful plant. How much more would a gardener be upset about the loss of a vine than than Jonah who just experienced it for a day? And what's more, he was upset because it was great benefit to him. This was self-interest. So Jonah, if you're upset about this 24-hour plant that shaded your head for the day, How much more would I, the gardener of Assyria, care for 120,000 lives who are completely lost and completely broken? Don't know their right hand from their left. They're floundering around. They they don't understand. They don't, don't have revelation. They're lost. They don't know how to live. And also many animals, which is kind of an interesting thing for him to say. I think it's a creational argument that he's making here that Jonah didn't create the plant, but God did create the animals and the, and the humans and the plants. God's concern for creation over the entire creation. And so to paraphrase the point of the lesson, if you, Jonah, are moved emotionally by the destruction of a plant you did not create, how much more am I going to be concerned about animals and humans that I did create? And that's the story. And so this book, this, this prophet, forces Israel to come face to face with a truth that they'd either forgotten or never learned in the first place. And the truth is this, their deliverer, their Lord, Yahweh, was not actually exclusively theirs. He was theirs, but he wasn't exclusively theirs. And that's the lesson. He was the creator of the entire cosmos, including the earth and every nation on the earth. And some of the prophets would preach about a remnant of Judah that's going to come. That's good and that's right. But what Jonah does is he actually prophesies by God and what this message is all about. A much broader picture returned to a broader vision given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed by you. The chosen people needed their vision to be pushed wider at a time where there was a threat that national consciousness was getting narrower. And understandably so, there was a vicious empire on the, on the loose. God's love for the world and his original calling to Abraham, to Israel, meant that he was also going to love their enemies. And fast forward to the New Testament and Jesus will say something about that also. I don't think God was unaware that this would be a stretch for Jonah, that this would be difficult. 
God knew about the brutality of the Assyrians. It didn't escape his knowledge. In fact, it says at the beginning that their brutality had come before him. I don't think he didn't care about Jonah's struggle with this, but he was gently getting Jonah to confront those struggles, to confront his own anger, to get it out on the table, to talk about it. And then he was going to invite Jonah and challenge him to widen his vision and see the world through the lenses of God, through God's eyes, because you start to see it a lot differently or look at it a lot differently. He was challenging an error at the heart of Jonah, at the heart of Israel, a growing nationalism, a developing hatred of enemies, and was calling him to confront it. He was offering him an alternative vision of the world and calling him to transfer his allegiance from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God that was going to be breaking in. And Jesus reinforces it in the New Testament when he says, I call you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that, friends, confronts us all. So by way of application, I said earlier on that the book of Jonah is left just sort of hanging. It's, it's unresolved. Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there's more than 120,000 people, don't know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? End. We're left with a question. The prophecy, the book just finishes. It's left hanging there. It doesn't get resolved. We don't know what happens with Jonah. Did he change his mind? Did he change his heart? Did he learn the lesson? Don't know. But the question God asked Jonah, and by extension all of us, is should I, God, not be concerned about my entire creation? Shouldn't I love the people that you hate? Shouldn't I be concerned for the people who maybe live in distant cities, who oppose your way of life, who harbor terrorists and thumb their noses at me, and if they had a chance would kill you? Shouldn't I care for them and love them too? And that challenges us. And it's easy to give a Sunday school answer. Well, of course he does. But it's not so easy for those of us who have suffered at the hands of other people. It's not so easy for us to come around to that. Doesn't God love them too? He doesn't love their sin, but he doesn't love yours or mine either. But he loves them and has open arms towards us, and that confronts all of us. And it calls us to do some deep soul work. It might call us to deal with our anger and our prejudice and our unresolved hurt and our pain and our hatred, get it out onto the table and allow God to work on it in us. And so the question for us today, is there someone that comes to mind or some people that come to mind that fit that mold for you that you think, you know what, good sermon, fine, I get it, but I'm not going there, not with that person. They hurt me too bad. To open your heart a crack, that's all you can do. To allow God in, to free you from that trouble. It doesn't mean, and don't hear me say this, that we necessarily need to fling wide our arms and welcome unsafe people back into our life. Uh Uh-uh. Sometimes it's very appropriate to keep very strict boundaries. It's not about that. It's about what's going on in here, and it's about actually freeing you from the captivity of your heart. It's a consideration of the love of God and His desire that none should perish. 
And so the message of Jonah is a hard message. And may God give us wisdom and strength and understanding as we wrestle with it. Let's, uh, let's close with a song here, uh, team.